Welcome to the We Are All Needed podcast, a space where we together will inspire people to do something good. This podcast is for all of us that care. We care about how we spend our days, how we show up for each other and for the planet. I'm your host, Alexander Nash. I am many things as we all are, but the things I most proudly identify with are I'm an entrepreneur, a mother, business coach, athlete, and meditation teacher. I've roamed the impact startup world for over 15 years now, and I feel like it is time to share the stories of so many fascinating people doing so many incredible things. Together with the guests on this show, we will provide inspiration that no act is too small and that we are all needed. Let's dive in to this week's episode. Today, I'm welcoming Charlotte Marav to the podcast. Charlotte is a creative, kind and impactful entrepreneur. Born in Africa to Swedish parents, she's the founder of not one, but four businesses. However, she's also employed by Africa's largest conservation organization. Because to be entrepreneurial doesn't have to mean that you own your own business, right? We talk about the less traditional paths of life, how inequality is perhaps where we should concentrate our efforts to provide the most impact, and that the entrepreneurial label should include anyone with a creative spirit. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, Alex. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here um, today. We uh, on this podcast love to start off with a deep and direct question straight away. Um, before we get to know you personally even more. So my first question to you is, if you got to view the future in the most idealistic way possible that you could imagine, what would that future look like? Uh, do you mean for me personally? For you, yes. For you personally and maybe for the mission or for the why, why you do the things you do. Uh, wow, that's a great question and a hard question. I think idealistically, um, in, the, in the perfect world, um, I would be able to do what I do, the companies that I have, um, but just expand them to be able to touch more people, which means by touching, I mean employ more people, because I think that's the biggest, um, for me, the biggest impact I can have. Uh, so idealistically, I would like to be able to grow my companies, employ more people, um, but then the challenge is to do all that while finding personal balance. <laughs> so doing all that while having, uh, plenty of time to rest and take care of myself and my loved ones, um, which seems like a, um, impossible equation to be honest, but that would be the idealistic yeah, way. That's interesting that you say that because growing, like growing your why and growing your vision and then leading a peaceful life, they seem to be quite like opposite sides of the spectrum. But I think at least many of the people that I uh, encounter, the ones that want to grow that, that big vision, they are also the ones that want to have the peaceful life. Yeah. So, oh, so it's an interesting, uh, it's an inter I, interesting equation. Yeah. And I honestly... I don't, I, I don't know if that, if the equation is possible, I would, I, I hope it is because, because that would mean more happy people. <laughs> so I hope it is, but, um, I wonder if it is, um, I think we're a few, very few of us have figured it, figured it out if there is a figuring it out. Um, but yeah, it's funny how 
somehow the pushing for growth um, and expansion of business seems somehow always equaling less quality of life in terms of like personal health and growth and peace, um, which is, which is a conundrum. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. And I can recognize so many, many of those things that you're saying. Um, but I think also it's, uh, it's interesting that we get into that topic. Cause I heard a while back, I heard someone that said, um, what's the point of revenue, uh, without profit if impact is the measure. Oh yeah. So I think also we need to, by growth, we really need to define the growth. What it is, what is it that we want to grow? Because I think many get on that trajectory of a revenue growth, or if you take it into a, you know, into the personal life, it's a growth of maybe acquiring more things or having a bigger house or any of those things. And I think, like you say, often they give us quite the opposite of what it is that we're trying to reach because you know from a personal perspective like a bigger house and more things actually very often equals less peace as well yeah no i think you make an absolute point there in terms of like what is what is growth like what what is it that you want with growth and also how do you measure the growth like because if it's just a financial growth or if it's um growth as you say in, in terms of either having more money in the bank, having more, having a bigger house, being able to buy services, um, or if it's growth in terms of my, my uh, profit is not going up, but I'm having more hours in my day to do things that I enjoy more or to give to people in another way. So yeah, I think obviously you need to define what it is that growth is, like what is it that you want to grow? Um, but yeah, it's, uh, but often also like somehow they all, often come hand in hand, kind of all of them. They're often connected, yeah. obviously, because in order to be able, because I, I mean, the reality is you need money to live, right? So yeah. uh, like you you need to have already, I mean, you and I are having this conversation from a very, uh, from a point of privilege already in terms of we have, we have food to eat every day and we're not living on existential minimum and we have options in our lives. So like if you're at that level, it's like, if you want more hours in your day to do more uh, fulfilling things, if not to say fun things, you need to be able to not work those hours somehow or put those hours on boring work, <laughs> yeah. uh, which then means having the luxury of not maybe earning money during those hours. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's... Um, it's a, what I call a spaghetti conversation. It's like you start pulling one spaghetti and then you, all the other ones come at the same time. Oh, I like that. I've never heard that spaghetti conversation. That's a good one. So I think many people are getting a little bit curious because you now said that you want to grow your business and you want to employ more people and grow your impact. So if you could uh, give the short version of who you are, who is Charlotte? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's a short version. So, uh, Charlotte, I am, um, a, I, my passport is Swedish, it's generally as I say, but I was born and raised in Africa in the central African Republic. Um, so coming from like a multilingual, multicultural background, um, and have lived most of my life in Africa, um, became an entrepreneur very early. So I started my first company when I was 19, 20 years old. 
Um, and have since started several different companies, all of them based out of Central African Republic, uh, working with different things, um, either working with uh, conservation or nature, um, or with um, a, a social entrepreneurship, working with artisan women. Um, and then also on the side of that, um, I'm also employed, uh, working for um, Africa's biggest conservation organization. Um, and um, managing um, assurance and risk for this organization. So that's, I would say, is my professional me. I don't know if that's a short version, um, but then as like who I am as a person, I would just say I'm a very creative person, um, a bit of a A-type personality for sure. Um, and, but with like my passion lies in trying to, um, create societal change, sustainable societal change, um, and especially for women in Africa. That's really fascinating. There are so many, uh, threads we can pull on. Um, first of all, how did you, you said you had a Swedish passport. Um, how did your parents end up in Central African Republic of all places? Are they both Swedish? Yeah. So both my parents were Swedish, um, but my dad was born and raised in Tanzania. Um, and my mother born and raised in Sweden. Um, and they were crazy adventurers. Um, and it's a very long story, but they basically drove through Africa a couple of times. And in one of those times ended up in Central African Republic. And my dad got an opportunity to, um, work for a water drilling project. And then eventually he got the possibility to buy the equipment and then start his own business. So they were entrepreneurs, had their own uh, business drilling water wells in Central African Republic. And so um, they had me and my brother there. So we were born there and raised there. That's fascinating. And they drove from Sweden to Africa? Yes. Yeah, they did. That must have taken a while. Yeah, it, it definitely, I don't remember how many how many months, but yes, it took a long time. But obviously also they did this a couple of times and in different years. And depending on which which year it was, which conflict it was like in different countries, they would obviously have to drive because there's many routes that you can drive. I mean, Africa is huge, right? So, um, you know, you could drive on different coasts or in the middle. Um, so they dro- drove different ways. But yes, that it was a, a wild journey, I think. <laughs> and where do you, do you still live in Central Africa today? Uh, yes, I do. So I would say that I have my my home, like where I feel the most at home is Central African Republic. And we have our family home in the Central African Republic. I still have my businesses in the Central African Republic. Um, but since a couple of years, I have kind of moved. So I'm not 100% in the Central African Republic anymore. Um, I lived there, I would say, permanently, uh, like full time up until almost two years ago. Um, and when I transited to another job, um, which had me also have a base in South Africa, um, so now I have a base in South Africa and I work in a couple of different African countries, but I come back to central, I speak to people within the central Africa every day. Um, yeah. and I go back to, uh, Bangui, which is the capital, uh, where the companies are based. Um, I go back there, I would say every, almost every two months. So basically every eight weeks I go back. Um, so it's still where I feel the most at home. Wow. So you say you're an entrepreneur and you have you have a couple of businesses now and you've also had a few that you no longer have right now. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So there's one business that I no longer have 
uh, now. It's been transferred to something else. Um, that was a safari business that eventually became uh, a conservation business, a conservation, not a business conservation organization. Um, so that is still running, but it's not run, it's not run and operated like a company. Um, and then uh, I have three businesses um, that I've started throughout from 2011 till now um, that I still operate today. And how do you, how did you end up as an entrepreneur in the Central African Republic? What do you think were the the main reasons why you ended up an entrepreneur and I don't know, anything else instead? Uh, well, my parents were entrepreneurs. So I grew up with parents who were constantly building their company, working in their company. And it was just, I mean, for me, it's a very much a, it's a spirit more than anything else. I know plenty of entrepreneurs who don't have companies and I still see them as entrepreneurs because they have like an entrepreneurial spirit. That's um, interesting. What would you, what would you classify as an entrepreneurial spirit? Uh, a, someone who is a creator, someone who likes to create, someone who finds solutions, someone who sees a problem and finds a solution to this problem um, in different ways. So for me, I think that is an entrepreneur, being a creative person and finding practical and pragmatic and long-term solutions to issues. Um, and it's actually something, maybe I'm going off a bit on a tangent, but it's something that I think about a lot lately about how my qualities as the things that um, make me a good entrepreneur or like me make me an entrepreneur in terms of having these seeing these like possibilities of business but also social impact and then having the drive to dare to go create it and figure it out and then test and try and grow it um, are also the same skills that make me very valuable staff for a company or for an organization um and so i also i i think a lot about how i think we define entrepreneurs as oh but if you're an entrepreneur you have your own company and you're driving your own company and unless you're if you don't you're not an entrepreneur which i don't i want to challenge that (laughs) because i don't i don't feel that's um i don't feel it's true actually um but what was your original question (laughs) no but i think just to just to uh add to that i think that's actually a good thing for all entrepreneurs to hear because i think often as an entrepreneur you hear things like oh you're not you're not employable how are you ever going to be able to work for someone else like almost like if you've gone the route to become an entrepreneur it's hard for you to ever get a job again because Mm -hmm you're dressed up as a person that can't fit in with like other frameworks than your own company. So I think that's something that's, that's a really positive way of, of framing entrepreneurial skills. Yeah. But also I think there is, to be honest, I think there is a a pride problem there too, somehow. Like I think, and I think for me personally, like somehow it feels like accepting to like, so if you identify as an entrepreneur, and you have businesses that you either are still running or not running, but regardless. Um, and then you go and take a job as an employee, like you get employed by someone. Um, I think for me, there was a little bit of a feeling of like giving up or selling out or like feeling like, oh, I'm not living my full potential because now I'm accepting to be employed by someone else. And yeah. like, there's a bit of like a pride issue there. Um, and it's been very interesting this past two years, um, and especially this last year, I would say, um, where for me, I've also more and more realized that being employed doesn't make me less entrepreneurial. Um, and actually the skills that I developed and honed and worked within my businesses are actually the skills that I use every day in my new job uh, as an employee. And that are the things that make me good at the job. 
yeah. um, and why they asked me to take this job. <laughs> yeah. I also think it's like, I think, I think uh, entrepreneurs have a little bit of a, I think the entrepreneurial culture have a little bit of a way of looking down at people who have had businesses and now they're employed. Yeah. Uh, I think there's that little bit of a culture there. Yeah. Uh, and also, and maybe we'll get into that, but as, as I've said, so I, I still have my businesses, but I'm also working as an employed person and um, like entre- being an entrepreneur doesn't have to look one way. You no. can look different ways. Yeah. And, and I think that's just very important. I think we're very often we go into like the success of an entrepreneur means creating your business, growing it until you make a lot of money and then you can employ people to manage it. And then you're a successful entrepreneur. Yeah. That's kind of, that's the trajectory we're talking about. And I'm yeah. like, well, is it really though? Like, can you not, like, can you also not be a successful entrepreneur while you're also being sometimes employed by someone else, sometimes not employed by someone else? Yeah. Uh, maybe also you don't have any more companies, but you're also, but you're using your entrepreneurial skills and, and capacity to be a really good performing and valuable asset to another company. That's not yeah. yours. Like, yeah. I just think there, need, there is so many more ways of ways of living, living out your entrepreneurness, if that's a word. <laughs> yeah, no, but I totally. And I think that that narrative I think makes people that maybe want to try to become entrepreneurs that they won't because it feels a bit like an all or nothing thing. Many of the stories we hear is like, oh, you know, they quit it all and they took the big step and they went all in and then they did this thing. Whereas in reality, most people actually don't do that. Like a lot of, and there's even research that support the most successful companies, the founders, I think held a job on the side for two to three years. Yeah, but those yeah. are not the stories you hear about on in you know in the media or on LinkedIn, um, no. which is um, which is something I think we should hear more of. Um, but also, you say your current organization obviously allows you to have the your own companies on the side. Was that an issue, or was that did they know that when they approached you, or did you have any do you have any experiences that you can share about that? Uh, no. So yes, I mean, they, they knew me from before. Um, so they knew that I had these companies. Um, and when we were discussing this job, they basically, I told them, I was like, I am able to, to work for you, like in terms of time, because my, the way I run my business is such as it doesn't take up a full-time job for me. I'm, I've figured out ways of doing it. Um, so I can work for you, but I'm not going to give up my businesses. So as long like I was just very upfront with that. And we actually, it's in my, it's in the contracts, it's signed. Um, because for me, it's very important that it's transparent also in terms of like the interest of understanding, um, of how, yeah, how I'm working and, and, uh, but I also honestly think, I mean, or I know that the, the reason my history, like my creation of the companies and the way companies are running and uh, is a part of why they, why they thought of me for this job. Like it's also, they, they, it was a big added value to me in terms of, of they wanting me, so to say. Yeah. So how did you get into, you said you started your first company already when you were 19. Yeah. How, how did that come about? Did you, you know, was it, you saw your parents and you saw they did their own thing and you were looking for your own thing or did it kind of fall into your lap? Did it start as a business right away? Or do you want to share a little bit about that story? 
So I think all my businesses have like fallen into my lap or like been just like aha light bulb moments where I've been like, of course I'm going to do that. And I've not thought so much about it. And I've just gone, gone ahead and do it and done it. So um, no, I think, I mean, first of all, obviously growing up with entrepreneur family, like with my parents, that lifestyle was obviously very um, just familiar to me in terms of I saw them find solutions to things all the time. I saw them take risks all the time. I saw them you know, how it is when you're an entrepreneur, your work always follows you around. And even when you, you know, you're never really on vacation, like just, this is just a lifestyle that I just saw them do. So for me, that was normal and natural. And then, um, this, this first business we started was together with my brother and it was just like, well, we want to start the safari business in this area of the country where there is nobody. And so there is nobody there. So if we want to start it, we have to do everything. So we just start a company. So then we just have to find solutions for everything. Now I will say that obviously, Having grown up in the Central African Republic, which is a country with no services, it's one of the world's poorest countries. So it's not like it's not like you can buy in services or that you can um, that there is a government that will that you can you know base yourself on or get help from or there's any regulations like everything you have to do everything yourself. Um, so uh, having grown up in that context, it was very natural for me that just like that. Of course, if you start something, you have to start from scratch, build everything, do everything. Um, so that Does, wasn't, sorry, that, go ahead. No, Does no, that no. mean you can go out and do everything like on your own or do you still need, I mean, in my mind, if in order to, to create like a safari company, you need some sort of like, I don't know, permissions, you need land, you need all these things. I'm assuming there's still some sort of, I, yeah, know, yeah. I mean, there is some there's... person that needs to put a stamp to a paper. Yeah, of course. No. And I mean, there is, um, there's lots of, there's lots of bureaucracy still, even there's non-functional Even state. there's not a system. That's nice. Uh, no, no. So of course, like you still have to register a company. You still have to pay taxes. You still um, get permission to still have to like, no, there's lots of stuff like that, of course, that we had to go through. Um, but in terms of like, you know, well, there isn't a road to go there. So like there was no literal physical road to go to the area where we wanted to go. So, okay, we need to open the road. How did you uh, find the area then? Or how did you know it existed or how? Uh, we looked on a map and we found the the part of Central Africa, which has the least people in it. And that's where we wanted to go. And did you know there were, this may be a silly question. Did you know there, know there were animals there or are animals everywhere? Yeah. I mean, where there's no people, there's animals generally. Uh, okay. uh, so um, we, we, we knew, like we had very strong indication that there would be lots of animals there because there was no people there. Um, so, and we did like one exploratory first season where we went, like we didn't have clients, we went in ourselves and obviously found a place and, you know, started like opening the actual physical road of where we eventually were going to have our camp. Um, and how and, do you open a road? Uh, you have a machete and you cut down everything that's in front of you by hand. Uh, Just you and your brother? Uh, and, a, and, a, and a bunch of staff and people together. We were, I think, 16, 17, I don't remember. Um, but yeah, uh, took a couple of months and you open like, you know, you're going like a kilometer takes forever because <laughs> you're in the forest. So wow. it's rainforest, humid, water, rain, you know, it's it's the bush. So. so I'm trying to create the picture a little bit. So you just turn up somewhere where like a road ends. Yeah. And then there is some sort of rainforest and you decide you've looked on a map and you've obviously decided that we want to get from here to there. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. Ish. So 
there is a road that ends in one place, uh, which is like the last village. <laughs> um, and so we want to go beyond that village. So if you want to go beyond that place, we have to open the road. And we had like an indication of where we thought would be a good place to be. We had looked at rivers, because uh, obviously if you're going to make a camp, you need to make sure there is water and, and permanent water supply all over the year. Because obviously we're in Africa, so there is a dry season, rainy season. A lot of rivers um, dry up during dry season, which means then you don't get water. So like we had thought about, so we knew like ish the location where we wanted to get to. Um, also looked at like just how the ground was because we needed, we would eventually need a airstrip to be able to land airplanes for supplies. So we also needed somewhere where there, we could get a kilometer in of a pretty flat uh, land. So like we'd done research before, um, but we didn't know what was waiting for us. Like we didn't have like, you know, a map is a map until you're on the ground. You're like, oh, the map doesn't look like the ground. Um, how did you even know, like, how did you know that an airplane needs like one kilometer? I'm sure you can obviously Google it, but besides that, how would so you know these happen. things? They seem like self-explanatory, but in my head, I go, I mean, it could need. Yeah, I mean, I think, and that comes from growing up in the context, right? Like yeah. so living in the bush, growing up in the bush in Africa, a lot of people operate planes. Companies need planes because the roads are so bad. So you can't get supplies. Uh, my father was also a, um, a private pilot uh, when he was young. So he was very interested in, in, in planes. We used a lot of planes as, as a family. Um, and then, yeah, so like we were exposed to aviation very early and we knew that like, that was just like, an, for us, uh, of course, but that a was a normal like, way of, of moving around, like knowledge that you gain just as eventually when I moved to Sweden and all the Swedish kids knew how to take the bus and I'd never taken the bus in my life because that was not a part of my context. <laughs> so that for me, it was just kind of the same thing. That's really, that's really funny. Uh, can you fly a plane? No. Well, no, I could probably land a ULM, an ultralight motor plane, um, but I can't fly. I can't fly a Cessna. I don't have. I don't have my license. You don't have your license. Okay. So when you started creating this row, then with the machetes, did you? Were there any risks to it? Were they? Were there potential? I don't know. People that could show up that didn't want you to be there, or animals, or was there anything? I mean, animals. I'm not, you know, you, animals is your, I mean, your least smallest problem in this world. Yeah. Um, like you know, like animals always stay away from you. Uh, so no, we weren't worried about animals besides mosquitoes and malaria, but that's a risk that we are exposed to all the time in Central Africa. Um, well, exposed to accidents, obviously. Like we we're really, really, really far away in the bush, and so if something happened, there was no support. Like there was nothing. Um, so obviously, just accidents was a big risk. And yes, I mean, Central African Republic is a country that's been in civil war for many, many years. Uh, there's lots of rebel groups, lots of different armed groups. Um, and that was obviously a risk um, that at the time when we started this company, the area we were was pretty calm. Um, and so we weren't at high risk at that point. Eventually we became at high risk because the conflict moved to where we, where we were. Um, but at the time when we started, um, but yeah, of course it was, it, yes, plenty, plenty of risks. <laughs> and how long were you out there? Were you out there? So you, you obviously set up some sort of camp along the way or. Yeah. I mean, we would just sleep besides the car, um, depending on like how mu much progress we made in the day of, of cutting down, like cutting down trees and building small, like forge to pass rivers or whatever, like it took forever. But, uh, so we would set up camp, just sleep next to the road, uh, or next to the cars, um, 
and we were out for about three and a half months. Um, and we had all the supplies with us in the cars. So um, we had with three cars and obviously we had to pull the cars, you know, because we had one car would have to pull out the cars and we'd get stuck a lot and took forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a very, very uh, steady diet of the same thing every day, three meals a day. Because what did you eat? Um, so we had manioc cassava, which is the staple food. Uh, so we had that every day. Um, and then like, we obviously did not have anything fresh. Um, and so it was like sardines, uh, and tomato sauce, um, in different ways. Um, and that was basically it. And then tea with lots of sugar. Um, and yeah, that was pretty much the steady diet. <laughs> and how did you get from there creating this road to actually getting a company up and running that was, I mean, eventually acquired by a much larger organization, right? Yeah. Oh, it was madness. Absolute madness. Um, I mean, if, if we go into the details of that, we're going to be talking for hours, but, uh, basically we eventually, I think it was part, we were so freaking tired of opening the road. So eventually we were like, and also rainy season were coming. So we're like, we're pressed of time soon. We're going to get stuck here. We're not going to be able to make progress. Um, so and next season, so next dry season, we want to be able to have clients here, which yeah. means we can find a place to op- to make a camp. So we found we there was a confluence, so two rivers joining together, and we knew that from the pictures, satellite pictures we had seen, we knew that those two rivers did not dry out, and we were basically at the point of we ran out of time, and we were so tired. And we were like, this confluence looks great. Let's build a camp here. So we didn't obviously build a camp at that stage because it was already too late in the season, but we had marked the spot and then we had already opened the road. Um, and then eventually we got out of there. A rainy season started and we got back out into civilization. Um, and then that's when the planning started. So then it was like, okay, so we're going to build a camp. Uh, what do we need? We need to purchase all these things. We need to do all these things. And then basically how the safari season worked in the Central Africa back in the day when when it was operating. So dry season started in December. So from October, we would be on the ground building the camp. So building the lodge, basically building where people are going to stay, the staff, the building, the garage, because you need to do maintenance of all your cars at the same time. So we would be in place every October, start working And then in December, we would get our first clients. And then we would basically work flat out with a full season of clients until the rain started back in beginning of May, end of April. And at that point, when the last client left, we basically had like 10 days or two weeks to pack the whole camp down, pack everything out and drive everything back out again. And then we would just do that every year. Oh, so it didn't stay there. So you you brought it in and out. And how... And how did you fund this in the beginning? How did you, I mean, just being three and a half months out in the bush? Well, it's, I mean, very, it's very exclusive uh, safari. So it's very expensive safari yeah. because obviously the logistics are so expensive. Yeah. Uh, so, but with the capital, it was uh, our dad, our, our parents who put in the first money to start. Uh, so it was thanks yeah. to we could start the company because obviously we didn't have any money. <laughs> we were 19. Um, that's pretty so- amazing parents though, giving money to their daughter that's 19 to go out with a machete with her brother to start a business. Oh, incredible. In the rainforest. <laughs> and that's what I say. We start this conversation from such a point of privilege because this is all made possible because, because our, I mean, it was the same thing. My, my, our parents had nothing and they had a company and worked up their wealth. Yeah they could help us start our company. So it's like an extreme 
point of privilege, absolutely. Um, and uh, but also, I mean, this would not have happened if our my our parents were not super adventurous and, and risk taking exactly and wanted to do something and wanted to build something and also, also part of their dream like they loved this they they were yeah so and they also i mean they were super nothing none of all this would have happened if it wasn't for our parents like they were also super involved and engaged and helpful when things when things went wrong um when we needed advice when we needed extra hands when we need you know as things go in the beginning you, you don't plan for things and then suddenly this breaks down and then that breaks down and then this person and that you know who do you call yeah who, yeah in our, in our situation we were extremely uh lucky and blessed to have parents who were always uh very excited and able um to come in like either just come in with a phone call and like i don't know how many calls i called my dad with my phone and listen, can you listen to this generator? It doesn't sound right. It's not working, but I don't know how to fix it. <laughs> and he would listen from his phone and he would be like, oh, it sounds like this and this is wrong. Have you tried this? <laughs> wow. Important in any kind of way. Yes. <laughs> That's incredible. And now, now besides your, um, your employment, do you have three companies? So you have two, how many companies? Three. Yeah. And what do they just briefly what do those companies are they all located in the central african republic yes they are um so uh the first company is called karakanji it's a hotel it's a boutique hotel that i started in 2011 um bought an old old building um uh, that renovated and started a hotel so been running that since 2011 um and then um i have vendara which is an artisan company that i started in 2017 um which employs artisan women um to produce homeware and different decoration objects um that we sell uh in bangi and in a, in a, a web shop also online um and then we have another company uh so this company is a company that me and my brother inherited from my father who passed away a couple of years ago um, and that company is a, um, I would say a real estate company. Um, so, um, we rent out apartments. Um, and so we have a property in Bangui and we rent out, uh, apartments. Um, but yeah, and, and with, in, with full services. So we have a team of staff who do the, everything from cleaning and fixing and maintenance and all of that stuff. So, um, so yeah, those are the three companies. Wow. So many of these companies that you have, um, the one that you've had and also the ones you're currently running as well as your employment have that kind of, um, you know, that, uh, how do you say like impact or there's like something extra to it. There's something, there's a bit of a, like you said, you're always, your passion is like societal, like long lasting change. There's, there's, there's that, that you have kind of navigating the way you make decisions, I think. It sounds mm -hmm. like, um, yeah. what are some of the things that, because I find it interesting. We quite often talk about, you know, these things that we have done and the things we've said yes to, but in order to do these things, we've also said no to a lot of things along the way. And I'm assuming just the, the simpler, uh, you know, example of like when you're out in the bush for three and a half months, there are, are a lot of things you're not doing as well. Um, as well as when you decide to take this employment for this particular company or starting the businesses that you have, what would you say are some of the things that you've had to say no to, to be on the journey that's taken you to where you are today? Um, well, I think the first thing I've had to say no to is uh, security, uh, safety. 
Um, I've chosen to live in and build my companies in one of the world's most dangerous countries um, in civil war. So I've like choosing that means I've also chosen to not live in what as a European we would call safety. Um, so that would be the first thing. Uh, I'd had to say no to a normal, whatever, 40 hour work week. <laughs> um, I, that, as, I mean, that, I've never had that. Um, so, which I think very few entrepreneurs have, um, yeah. that's definitely been, I've had to say no to that. Um, I mean, there's so many things that I've had to say no to, um, have had to say no to a lot of comforts, a lot of safety on, and I'm not talking about like the, the, the civil war and that, but I'm talking about like coming from a perspective of um, working in, in uh, Africa where there is no system. So there is no insurances. Um, there is no government that will help you or advise you, or there is no resources you can call on. Um, and also the fact that it is Central African Republic. It's not like in Sweden or in the US or developed countries where you have communities of entrepreneurs or business-minded people that you can draw from and exchange with. Yeah. I think I've had to say in a way though, and this is, it's never black and white, right? But like in a way said no, choosing to have the companies where I have them has meant I've had to say, say yes to a lot of um, loneliness, yeah. I would say. Um, a lot of being alone in my field and the only person doing it and no to community in a certain way. I mean, obviously I've committed in other ways, but I would say like more traditional communities. Would you say that some of the, what would you, what would you call it? Like some of the traditional um, entrepreneurial advice don't really pertain to businesses that work in that kind of context context that you work in um i don't know i mean no i mean some advice always pertain like i mean there's some you know solid things that you would always that's always true yeah. um, but as, of course like i find i'll be honest i don't read entrepreneurial books i don't read that because i'm like well like in a perfect world yeah exactly like in a perfect world but we're not living in a perfect world and um being a leader in Sweden is very different to being a leader in the Central African Republic. The things you, I mean, people are people and that's true, but like this, the, the things you need to understand about the culture where you are is very, very different. So, um, I would say, I mean, it's a good question. Um, but it doesn't have like one answer. Um, how would you, what, what would you have wanted to be there to let's say, um, let's say you wanted to create an environment where more people would feel, you know, less lonely and more able to build businesses in the Central African Republic and contexts alike, what would you have liked, you know, to be there in order for that to happen? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, to be honest, from my perspective, they would just need to be, um, basic opportunity, like basic, um, and, when I say opportunity is basic human rights, yeah. <laughs> um, like access to schooling. Cause I think, I mean, for me, so, you know, just to give context, the women we work with um, often when we started, like they don't know how to read and write. Um, they don't have the faintest idea about how to calculate the price for something or, you know, so like their reality and context is so different to 
to anything, anything that we come from. Um, and I think, you know, we, I think things would have been so different and I think things are different in countries where, um, there is a bit of education. Um, they have so many more opportunities than, than what other certain countries have. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very true. It's a complex, uh, it's a complex issue, isn't it? Uh, and if you look back at your journey, um, what are some of the things that light you up? Oh, wow. Uh, to be honest, all the challenges. I mean, if I, if I look back at what strikes me as like, when I look back and I think about times where I've felt extremely alive, um, and like that I've been extremely, they always, there, there are always also times that have been extremely challenging. Um, and the times that I am the most proud of are also the times that have been the most challenging in terms of shit hit the fan and we had to deal with it. Um, and those are the times that are also the most light and somehow like, obviously I know again, it's, it's when you're out of it that you can see it that yeah. way. Yeah. So when you're in it, you don't see it, <laughs> but when you're out of it, that those stand out. That's really, yeah, I like that. And I think that's also very encouraging because it's like you say, entrepreneurship and trying to do good things come with a lot of challenges, but overcoming challenges is a positive thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's the same thing when people ask, you know, what are your strengths? But, you know, my strength is also my weaknesses. Like my stubbornness is both my strengths as well as a weakness. It all depends on how you, how you use them. Like, yeah. and I think that's the same thing with challenges. It's like, the challenges is what's the it's that's what's challenging, right? Like yeah. that hard stuff that you have to work through. It's crisis. It makes you uncomfortable. Um, but it's like when you get out of that, where you can look at it from the other side and you're like, Oh wow. Like this experience really grew me or, Oh, I learned all these things. Um, so I just think it's so important to remember that our strengths is also our weaknesses. It just depends completely on how we use them and from which perspective you look at them. Yeah. Um, so are often our most, um, fulfilling or our most pivotal moments that we'll look back and look at, look at like, and they will be these, like, if you call them like sea change moments, um, will be our hardest times. But when we look back at them, they won't necessarily be the hardest. Like we'll look at them from another light. Yeah. Yeah. Life is very different when, when you are in it and when you look back at it. Oh, absolutely. And it's so yeah. easy to... That's why I think it's so important to, uh, well, I do at least I journal, um, and I find it fascinating to go back through my journal, uh, sometimes and be like, oh yeah, this is, this is how I felt at that time. And now that I'm, happened. Later, and I'm like, look at it completely differently. But I think it's very humbling to realize like yeah. pain that you were feeling for some reason or the stress or the anxiety or whatever it is that you're, you know, dealing with that, that specific time. Yeah. Uh, and just remember, I think for me, I always just try to remind myself of, you know, time passes and time changes things. Yeah. And they do. Like it always does. Like when you look oh. at something, it looks so different. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. And if you go back all the way in your life, back to your childhood and think about, because often I think when we, um, on entrepreneurial journeys, when we try to find, especially if we are a sustainable entrepreneur, an impact entrepreneur, or 
we're just a human, you know, that want to do something that matters a bit more. We want to have a bit more meaning. Very often the advice is, you know, to go back to your childhood and like, what are the things that you liked when you were a kid or what did you spend time on? And that made, you know, feels like time never passed because a lot of creativity, um, what the research often show is that when we're young, we're very creative and then almost the creativity gets beaten out of us as we grow up. So if you look back at your childhood, was there something that you spend a lot of time doing as a child that you would have liked to spend more time doing now if you had the time? Well, I think I, I think most people would say just play, right? Like when yeah. you're play, because you don't like your imagination isn't blocked by anything. Uh, so you you can imagine you can. I remember these like extremely complex make believe worlds that I made up to myself um, of different ages. Like I remember I had these like I was the Stone Age. I was in, in you know I was like different countries, different worlds, different times. Like and they were super complex. Um, so I think just play in general, but I think, I mean, at the same time, I think it's it's uh, in, unrealistic to think that an adult will play in the same way because I just don't think that's um, like physiologically possible. I think our brain changes and I think this, that's how it is. Um, but creative, like being creative, but I also think, and just allowing oneself to dream. I think yeah. that's allowing yourself to fantasize, like to dream about crazy things, like what yeah. you want like and make up these crazy dreams of of things and i think that's something that i wish that i um could allow myself to do more without having my adult human brain being like well that's not possible yeah and i think maybe like you say the the play element that we have as children what the form can look like for us as adults is maybe more the unstructured you know just to allow yourself to have unstructured gaps of like of time because Mm -hmm. that's when we have you know we have a tendency to have our best ideas and when we're being creative and I think that's why a lot of us maybe feel a bit stagnant or we're not creative because we don't have those blocks of unstructured just time to dream or think or or play or whatever it is that you want to fill that gap with but it's also like fascinating right about how a, a kid as when you're a child you you don't think about time like time doesn't mean anything right like yeah you know, hour can be like it you know it, it doesn't it have has a no concept no well in our world today it's like everything is just structured in time like even our play so to say like oh i have 30 minutes where i can sit and read a book yeah <laughs> and of course like or i have 30 minutes where i can journal or i have 15 minutes when i can go pick flowers or whatever it is that you want to do but like yeah even that, and I think that sometimes that is such a, I wish, I, I mean, I wish it wasn't the case, but I also think that this is how our society is. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, I don't think that's going to change. Um, I think it's maybe more about being more mindful. Maybe it's more about being more mindful when we do these things, like actually being present. Yeah. And I do think that's a big difference between our life of today and if I compare like even my parents' life growing up, like being in Africa without internet, without phone, without pos- like you were present because there was nothing else that you could do. Like no. you were here driving today from this place to this place. Yeah. That's what 
did because there was no smartphone pinging. There was no data. You couldn't be talking to your staff at the same time as you were doing this other thing. No. I think about that a lot, actually, as I'm managing my companies from a distance when I'm traveling and doing other work. Like I can be here sitting in Sweden as I am today. So I'm sitting in Sweden, but I've already spoken to five different people in four different countries about different things they need to be doing and checking in on stuff. Yeah. And so this does not make me present in the moment that I am. No, it's both, like you said, it, nothing is black and white. It's, it's, it's both a positive um, and a negative. And it's interesting when you talk about time, because now if you look at the way we live our lives, I mean, you could say that we have more time than we've ever had before. We have washing machines, we have dryers, we have electrical lawnmowers, we have electrical yeah. vacuum cleaners. Vacuum cleaners that go by themselves. <laughs> exactly. I even saw yesterday that they've come out with an electrical wheelbarrow. Um, oh, so, I mean, and we order food to our house. We can work from home. Like, I'm not saying, it, like, you know, there's a good or a bad, but it's just that the concept of time is an interesting construct because, you know, you could say we have more time than ever. Let even though when you ask people today, including myself, um, most people will say we never have time. Yeah, exactly. But maybe that goes back to the part where we talked about like how our strengths are our weaknesses and the most challenging times is also the times where we feel the most alive and maybe are pivotal when we look from the other side of the perspective. It's the same thing. It's like all these tools give us more, actually give us more time in terms of actual hours and yeah. it makes it possible for you to sit and talk to me on the other side of the world or yeah. for me to manage companies on the other side of the world or to just keep in contact with your family and friends and be engaged with them as we all live very uh, internationally. And so that's a gift. Like it's a gift that's amazing tools that can yeah. be used both for good and bad. Yeah. And so we can use them for something good in our lives and make them enablers. But if we don't control the way they are enabling us, we are never present. So maybe it's more about learning to control, like learning to manage. How to use them. And to, because like, I, I, I thought about that today as I was talking to a staff member and we were discussing a thing and they were going to, what they were going to do about this thing. And I was like, you know, if I don't talk to this person about this, she will most likely figure out a solution. Figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> But the fact that I can, then I will. And sometimes I'm like, yeah. Charlotte, you need to not. Like, have your coffee, do your thing. Let her yeah. be present in her moment. And instead of, like, talking to me on the other side of the world about this thing that she probably knows how to manage herself. So I also think it's about how we how we use these things in our life. Because yeah. if I have an automatic vacuum cleaner, but as it's vacuuming, I'm also, I don't know, doing 500 other things, then maybe it's not actually giving me more time. No. No, like, that's true. I'm just, if I'm getting solutions to, to have more time, but just filling my time with other things. Yeah. And not being intentional with the time that you get, it's just going to make you feel like you have less time, I think. Yeah. And then you're not, and then exactly. And then you're not, you're not present. You're not mindful. And then no. you're feeling like you don't have time anyway. <laughs> no. Speaking about vacuuming, I have a manual vacuum cleaner and I vacuum it by myself once a week. And it's my prime it's the time when my mind is off and I have so many good ideas when I vacuum. It's just a tip. A tip. <laughs> um, so just to finish off with um, a tip, I was wondering if you were to give the listener one simple thing that they could do today 
to create some impact for the planet or for humanity, the people around us, what would that, what would that simple thing be? Kindness. Just be kind. Like we have, I'm always constantly reminded of how I have absolutely no idea what goes on in other people's lives. And so being kind, I think it's the most radical thing we can do for, for the, for people and the planet. It's like, if we can be kind to each other, to strangers, to friends, to family members, um, that I think that is the one biggest thing we can do to create change. Just be kind. That's beautiful. And how can we support you and your businesses in the best way possible? Um, well, I would say, I would say you shouldn't necessarily support my businesses. <laughs> I think you should support, um, support artists and businesses around the world. Um, there's a lot of really cool artists and entrepreneurs around the world in contexts where their business means everything to them and actually means the survival of their family. So instead of buying something at a big company um, that's mass produced, um, buy stuff from artisans, buy stuff from people who actually buy it from the makers, the actual makers of the products and make sure that the money that you invest into buying something, make sure that that money is actually attached to a real person that is actually, it's actually making change in their life. Um, so I think that's what you, what everybody should be doing about in, in terms of like, how do we, and I think that goes back to kindness. It's like, you know, thinking about, I can go and buy this thing from a big store that mass produces something, but I could also, you know, it could take maybe a week or two longer because this thing needs to be shipped from somewhere and it will be more expensive maybe. Um, but this thing comes from an actual person produced by actual hands. And this actual person is supporting a family based on this work. So I think, um, supporting, just supporting artists and businesses. I think that's, uh, also a big part of, uh, being kind, uh, and thinking about long-term, uh, change around, uh, I would say around us, but actually for ourselves too. As well. Yeah. That's beautiful. Beautiful last words. Wow. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your time and for making this podcast. And I hope I will see you and speak to you soon again. I'll just say one thing before we log off. Yes. I've heard you talk about starting a podcast for a long time. And you've been talking about how you really want to do it. And it's really fun to see that you're actually doing it. So congratulations and Thank well you. done for being brave and trying things even when they're not perfect and when you don't know how they're going to turn out. So oh. good job. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. All right. See you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for using your precious time to listen to the We Are All Needed podcast. And if you find the podcast valuable, please rate, review, and most importantly, share this episode so that we can spread more goodness out there in the world. If you want to work with me, find out more about the guests or the community, please jump on over to www.thecircularentrepreneurs.com. Until next time.